This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Kevin Bonham. Kevin is a sophologist, a polling analyst and political commentator, and he joined me to discuss the Victorian state election, including the latest polling figures, as well as the problem with group voting tickets and preference harvesting. He tells us why we should vote below the line in the upper house to disrupt the preference deals that have been done behind closed doors. I am absolutely delighted to welcome onto this program Dr. Kevin Bonham. Kevin is a cephologist, a polling analyst and political commentator. And he's joining me right now to talk about the Victorian state election More specifically, we'll be looking at what the polling figures are telling us at the moment, but especially, I think, in a practical sense, the problem with group voting tickets, which have largely been gotten rid of in many other uh, jurisdictions, you might know um, group voting tickets more broadly as preference harvesting or involving preference harvesting. So we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of that and what it means in practice and has meant in previous elections for the types of members who have actually gotten up and managed to become elected. So that does have great practical implications for us because it means that our preferences can kind of be gotten around. Maybe we voted above the line and that means that whichever party we voted won for, all of our preferences go the way that they've decided and via the deals that they've done behind the scenes. So what does it mean to actually vote below the line for the upper house in the Victorian state election? And what practical implications does that have for our preferences, but also obviously for the results of a state election. This Victorian state election is just around the corner this Saturday and many people have already voted early or are getting ready to send off their postal votes or perhaps you're going to do it the old-fashioned way and stand in line and have a sausage on the day. Whatever it is, it's you know a very important thing for us to be discussing today. So I welcome onto the show Kevin Bonham. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Now, I thought first up I would address something that I would love to know more about, which is this word sophologist and obviously sophology, because it's something that perhaps our listeners haven't heard of before. I did do a quick search myself, but I'd love to hear from you what is involved in being a sophologist. It just involves the studying of uh, elections, voting, voter behaviour and uh, all those kinds of things. It's uh, a funny sounding word with a silent P at the front of it, which I believe comes from something involving pebbles. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, And it seems to have more of a a kind of scientific basis in the sense that you're kind of doing a lot of maths. It's not necessarily just your opinion, is it? Yes, it's a lot of uh, number crunching and and calculations and uh, looking at uh, modelling of past elections and uh, looking at polls and the the property of polls and things like that to um, not only look at what sorts of things might happen in an election, but also to look at what sorts of things have happened in an election once it's over and and, and also to look at things like projecting uh, results on the uh, the night of the election when you have uh, incomplete information and as more information comes in, as more votes are counted. Mm. And we might be familiar with Anthony Green's work and I'm sure, you know, you're both kind of doing pretty much the same work or similar work, aren't you? 
there are a, a bunch of us in the Australian chef community, I guess there are about a dozen of us or so around the around the place, and we sort of cover different niches. So we 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 sort of complement each other and fill in all the gaps in each other's work between us. It works quite nicely like that. Well, I have been fascinated by your tweets and I've been following you for a long time. And if everyone wants to jump on Twitter while it's still alive, um, and uh, Kevin's handle is at Kevin Bonham. Kevin, you've certainly been tweeting about polls. And I mentioned off air, you know, not all polls are created equally. And certainly some of the questions that are asked of voters are very well, can lead voters down a certain path. So it means that the results that we're looking at may not be as reliable as we think. And I think some of the polling that you were looking at around, you know, which politicians do you trust? I thought that was quite interesting. Some of the critiques you were making about the way that pollsters set up polls. Could you share with us some of the drawbacks or the weaknesses of polling? There are a lot of issues with polling design that make some polls more reliable than others. Uh, the one that you mentioned there is the there is a Morgan poll where they're measuring the trust levels of leaders by just asking an, an opening question about who do you trust in this election without naming any uh, particular leader. And the result is that relatively few people name uh, either leader, which is quite different to what you get if you... Uh, Asked, do you trust Daniel Andrews or do you trust Dan Matthew Guy? You get quite quite a stronger response in that case. And uh, Morgan has been um, drawing a lot of conclusions from very little data in terms of the number of people who actually offered an, an unprompted opinion of either of them. Uh, there are there are a lot of polls active at this election, a lot more than the uh, the previous election, 2018 Victorian election, was very sparsely polled. But uh, this election, we've got five major pollsters active so far, which is a, a good good diversity and be interesting to see who comes out most accurate. Mm, absolutely. Um, does that mean that, that that poll on leaders and trust, does that rely upon the voter to actually know the name of the political leaders? Not only to know the name of the political leaders, but also to be thinking of them when they're just asked a random question about mm -hmm. uh, who do you trust. And very few people were offering Matthew Guy as a person who they trust uh, unprompted without being asked, do you trust Matthew Guy? <laughs> it's, it's only only a 4%, uh, and I think it was 2% in the previous one, who have said have offered him unprompted. And that's partly the, um, partly the, the, the curse of being an, an opposition leader to a degree. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I would love to talk about some of the new polling figures. As you've just been tweeting, there is a Resolve poll that's come out this morning and it seems to kind of follow a trend that I've heard discussed, which is that the primary vote of the Labor Party and the LNP are pretty much neck and neck, but it's then when you distribute preferences that you see a difference, that you see a kind of lead, obviously, with the ALP. And at the moment, um, on a two-party preferred basis after preferences have been distributed, it's the ALP on 53 and the LNP on 47. But could you dig into what that poll is telling us at the moment about the race? Because we are, you know, edging closer to Saturday now and whether it's reflective of previous polls, are we seeing a change or is the trend continuing? The trend for about the past year and a half has been that Labor has generally had 
massive leads until recently there hadn't been a poll for a year and a half that was closer than 55-45. And we're starting to see more polls that are around about 53-54, that sort of range. And so that's playing into this narrative that things are closing up. Um, if the major parties are level on primaries, then Labor has a big advantage on Greens preferences. And that basically means that if the major parties are level on primaries, uh, Labor wins and very probably wins a majority. This particular resolve poll is interesting because the independent voters dropped from 12% to 6% since the last one. And that's most likely because they've started only including independents by name in the seats where they are running, although I haven't seen that detail explicit. And the others vote, which is sort of parties like One Nation, Shooters and Fishers and Farmers, Animal Justice and so on, has uh, suddenly shot up to uh, 12% from 6%, which is a bit mysterious. It would be useful to have a breakdown of uh, who these others actually are, but we don't seem to have that at the moment. Yes. Well, the others encompass such a broad political spectrum from left to right. I was wondering, because obviously in the, the federal election, we did have some kind of seat-based polling, but are there any indications in some of those independent contested seats in the inner city, are there any indications via polling um, as to what might be happening in those races or is that, is that something we're going to have to wait until election night for? There's been very little seat polling at this election so far. Um, there was some hypothetical seat polling involving independents some time back, but nothing recent and nothing robust uh, seat polling is in a fair amount of disrepute for various reasons, although the uh, Climate 200 Redbridge polls at the federal election of some of these independent seats were actually very good. Mm, interesting, because uh, I am aware that there's been some polling by Redbridge for the Herald Sun in the past week or so. Is that polling also kind of aligning with the Resolve poll at the moment? So that poll had uh, a, a two-party preferred vote of 53.5 to Labor, but it was not clear where that figure came from. And when I calculated it using the results of the previous election, I got it as more like 55.45 on the numbers in that Redbridge poll for all the hung parliament hype surrounding it. Uh, on the numbers in that poll, Labor would have won a majority almost certainly probably a large majority. Mm -mm. I was interested also when that uh, Redbridge poll started to delve into issues like the health system uh, and transport, et cetera, that there seemed to be some interesting skews towards different parties, um, including, you know, Matthew Guy and the coalition uh, being the best-placed party to fix the health crisis over Daniel Andrews and Labor. Do you think that these kind of polls are reliable? Because that's clearly a platform that Matthew Guy is running very heavily on at the moment with his advertising. I thought that particular poll on health was very unreliable. Mm. And the reason was the, uh, the question design that started with asking voters... Uh, 
do you believe there is a health crisis in Victoria? And when when you start with a question like that, that's very likely to uh, skew the results considerably because of the impact on the follow-up questions. And I, I would uh, ignore the uh, health findings from that poll more or less completely for that reason. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be wondering what issues are going to sway people. And certainly in the lead up to this, some people are wondering if it will be health or more broadly uh, the coronavirus and the way that it was handled on both sides, left and right. We'll obviously probably have to wait and see. Will there be exit polling on the day, do you think, that will give us um, early indicators? I don't know if anyone's going to try exit polling at this election. Exit polling is uh, on the way out because of the increasing share of voters who vote before the day, meaning mm. that uh, an exit poll of polling booths is uh, unreliable. And I know uh, YouGov have traditionally done uh, exit polling in various, various guises when it was Galaxy and so on. Uh, didn't do one at the federal election uh, this time. And if we do get one, I'd treat it with a lot of caution. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good to know. I also wanted to touch on something you just mentioned there, which is talking about those who have cast a pre-poll vote and those who have either applied for a postal vote or are in the process of completing their postal vote. It seems that that area has certainly increased in the number of people who have taken up pre-poll and postal voting. Just how much of a difference is there now between the 2018 Victorian state election and, uh, and this one here in 2022 with people choosing to, to cast their vote before the day? It's just going up and up and up every election. Uh I haven't actually looked at the latest uh, stats on where it's at in the last few days. Uh, Anthony Green's been compiling them. The, the last time I looked, I think um, postal and pre-poll were both up about 5% on last time. Yeah. Well, I've just had a quick check on Anthony Green's Twitter. He said, so far, 22.4% of enrolled voters have cast a pre-poll vote. So that's, yeah, pretty big, isn't it? A big proportion. Yeah, and there'll be more to come and there'll be more voting postally. So you get into a stage where um, only about half the voters who vote are voting on the day in booths. Yeah, yeah. Now, Kevin, there is uh, something that I've just been really wanting to talk about and it's something you've been writing about, speaking about, and as have, I'm sure, your other colleagues in your field talking about, and this is a group voting tickets it's something that we might know better as or kind of have an association with preference harvesting and know about these kind of preference deals we hear about in the news where major parties and minor parties, micro parties get together and, and they do these deals to try and get them elected and over the line. And it is something that clearly has a huge influence in the upper house. But I wanted to, I guess, get to the basics of it first for those who aren't familiar with this um, issue of group ticket voting. Could you set the scene for us and what the problems with it are, especially because, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the chat, clearly other jurisdictions have gotten rid of this system? Yes, group ticket voting was a system that was invented for the Senate in the 1980s 
to control problems of high informal voting rates at the time because prior to that, voters had to number every box in the Senate and voters were numbering 70 boxes or something like that. And there was a, there were huge informal rates because of the number of mistakes being made. And between the parties at the time, what ended up being supported was this system called group ticket voting, where you could put a, a one above the line and your vote would be distributed according to a ticket that was lodged by your party. It was initially a very good solution to the problem, but it didn't take too long for it to turn out out that this system could be gamed by groups of micro-parties stitching together deals and exploiting the fact that a lot of voters will do the bare minimum. They, they are happy to just do whatever they can do to cast a valid vote and get out of there. And it was discovered that parties could trade preferences and by that method get someone elected from a very low voting share who would never have got elected under any other electoral system in the world. Absolutely. And I think this really played out quite clearly in 2018 in the last Victorian state election where you write that the people who were elected in the Legislative Council in 2018, between a fifth and a quarter were undeserved in their election in the sense that they got a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of the vote and yet they still got over the line and got elected. And it makes you wonder how that is possible. How on earth could someone with 1.5% as an individual or 0.62% as a party get into parliament? Yes, yeah, so if you have 10 little parties and they each poll 1% of the vote and they all decide that they're going to send their group ticket votes to each other, even though their voters wouldn't actually do that, uh, then what happens is that as they get eliminated, one of them goes out and passes to the other one, one of them goes out and passes to the other one and so on. And whichever one is the last survivor, all the votes sort of form a, a sort of snowball effect into that one candidate. And that one candidate gets thrown very high into the count. And then all that one candidate needs is for one of the big parties to have put them above one of the other big parties, which quite often happens because the, the major parties will usually preference any random party above each other, and suddenly they're, they're in. Sometimes sometimes they can even do it entirely off the votes of micro-parties without needing anyone else. This is completely different to what happens in the federal elections. In the federal elections for the Senate, when voters have to distribute their own preferences, um, mostly whoever voters vote for, they will mostly tend to preference the bigger parties uh, or the Greens or maybe One Nation. And so votes cannot congregate with these minor parties that voters have never heard of. Even the voters for the other minor parties have never heard of most of these minor parties. Mm. Well, does that mean then that it requires a significant degree of not only coordination but agreement as to which party would get these preference flows? Yes, it's it's a complex exercise to organise these preference flows. And we've been seeing a lot of revelations about uh, Glenn Drury and the parties uh, dealing with him to uh, to organise them. It's not simple because you have to work out things like uh, sort of one party might do well in one region. Uh, you might want another party to do well in another region and so on to try to get the maximum number of seats. It's quite a lot of 
technique involved there it's quite complicated um I've, I've i've sort of thought about whether i could ever uh, start doing it for free myself in a way that would uh disrupt glen drury's efforts just just for the sake of uh stopping it from working but it's it will be hard work yeah it sounds like it uh, for those who might be or might not be familiar with glen drury people have called him the preference whisperer quote unquote. And it's something that he certainly has a reputation for over so many different elections. And it's something that I know many people had uh, reflected on, especially with parties like the Greens, for example, in 2018, where not only your analysis, but others have said that they seem to have been quite disadvantaged by this group ticket voting system. Could you explain you know, that particular circumstance, how the Greens, you know, might have got a decent amount of the vote for the upper house, but didn't end up seeing it reflected in the number of seats they got. Yes, there were a lot of seats where the Greens got short of a quota, but were the the next party in line for a seat based on primary votes. The quota is 16.6% and the Greens only got about that in one district one region and in the other regions they were they were short of it and because of this preference harvesting situation there were cases where the greens polled say 12% and would have won under the senate system would have won under any remotely fair system but um because of the tightness of these preference spirals uh, micro parties were able to cobble together enough votes to beat them off very low vote shares in cases around 1% or even lower. And so you've got cases where um, a party was beating a party with 14 times its primary vote support. Uh, the Greens aren't the only ones who were disadvantaged. The, the coalition did quite badly out of it as well. The coalition lost, I think, three seats that they uh, should have won. It's a problem for any party that polls a substantial uh, vote. It's, it's also a problem for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers. The Shooters, Fishers and Farmers had one uh, region where they more than doubled their vote from last time, and it was a fantastic result in terms of the vote that they got, but they were then uh, beaten by preference harvesters. So uh, it's like anyone who gets a decent vote is uh, at risk, but the Greens had a particularly bad rub of it because under the under a Senate-style system, they would have won something like five seats, and instead they ended up with only one. So if we're thinking about these micro parties, especially in the 2018 election, who are the ones who have benefited the most in recent memory and have gotten up? Like, what are these parties? You know, what are their names? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure one of them was Transport Matters. Yes, Transport Matters was the one that won off the, the lowest vote share. It won off 0.6%. Uh, so at the last election, Transport Matters... Um, Sustainable Australia, the Liberal Democrats. Uh, Darren Hinch's Justice Party was a, a big winner. They won three seats, but then Catherine Cumming immediately left. Um, the Animal Justice Party was also a micro party that got elected by um, coming up from a low vote share. Uh, their case was a little bit different. They weren't as, as tight with the Drury Group as some of the others. Uh, the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers themselves um, were involved in these these dealings. Uh, I may be missing one, but there are about 11 mm. seats in total. Indeed. And there are now more of these micro-parties coming into the fray with some very odd names. 
including the Angry Victorians Party, which have been in the news over the weekend um, with their one of their candidates, Catherine Cumming, making some very disturbing remarks, which I'm not going to repeat. Uh, but, you know, th- it seems like now with the upper house sheet or ballot that you're given, it's getting quite overwhelming with the number of small parties that um, that have these really kind of niche agendas, at least what their name suggests, but perhaps what their policies are a little bit more uh, opaque. Yes, and group ticket voting encourages this in a number of ways. Uh, one is that uh, the group ticket voting uh, encourages running lots and lots of little parties so that you have enough to get a preference snowball going. Uh, it encourages running parties with gimmicky names um, to try to harvest votes of clueless voters. So, for instance, you have the Sack Dan Andrews Party, which is not actually a genuine anti-Dan Andrews party, but is set up to try to take votes away from parties that are set up to harvest anger with Dan Andrews. And another aspect of it is that just the fact that anyone can, in theory, win, the fact that you can win seats of half a percent, one percent of the vote, encourages these micro-parties to run, whereas under the Senate system they can realise that they're uncompetitive and give up or merge. Yeah, no, it's it's very confusing. You have put together an excellent blog post on some of these parties and also their positions on this very problematic situation we find ourselves in with the group ticket voting system and preference harvesting. And so you've published their position if a position does exist on group ticket voting. And it's certainly something that the parliament could have been dealing with at, well, pretty much any point in the last four years. They clearly haven't wanted to. And I was wondering, what's your assessment of the parties that have been in parliament and their willingness to change the system? Uh, it's actually been extremely disappointing that uh, after the last election, which was a scandal, that uh, the Victorian's parliament has done nothing about group ticket voting and that almost every party in the current parliament, uh, I exempt only the Greens from that, every other party in the current parliament is to blame for that. Every other party has either actively opposed changes to group ticket voting or else uh, done nothing about the problem. Uh, There's a lot of theories as to why the government has done nothing about it, uh, as to whether this is um, deliberate on their part that they like a system that makes life difficult for the Greens, that they would rather work with a a diverse crossbench of people who may not be deservedly elected. Uh, But whatever reason there we are the the uh, the last electoral matters committee recommended to the victorian parliament that it set up a separate inquiry into group ticket voting the victorian parliament never did that that's largely the fault of the current government and as a result here we are we're we're uh, we're back again uh, anthony green was saying at the last election i predict this is the last election we will see under the system but it wasn't Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I uh, I wanted to you know bring up some of the points you raised not only in the blog post but also in your submission to the inquiries that have been going on. Um, there's an excellent one online that I'll link to where you really clearly lay out some of these arguments. But you kind of you explain to us 
how this system can essentially undermine accountability and transparency and essentially democracy by getting these micro-parties elected. Could you explain some of these arguments that we haven't yet touched on that you think are also compelling um, that we should be considering when thinking about below-the-line voting as, a, as, a, as an option for us? Yes, one of the big problems with group ticket voting, electing these people off 1% or 2% of the vote, they they may be good or bad MPs. We, you know, That's a matter of, of, of opinion as to how well they've performed, uh, but they're not accountable to voters in the way that they're accountable to preference dealing arrangements. Um, you can, because there's such a weak relationship between what vote you get and whether you get a seat or not under this system, uh, you can have cases like the shooters where their vote more than doubled and they still lost their seat. You can have cases where someone gets hardly any votes at the uh, at one election, gets hardly any votes at the next election, but they still get re-elected because they've got good uh, um, preference dealing arrangements. It's like they become more accountable to their fate in these these backroom dealings um, than they are to to the support of of a of a serious range of voters. In New South Wales, there's a single statewide electorate, and in New South Wales, micro parties do get elected with one and a half two percent of the vote, but they're accountable to that one or two and a half two percent of the vote. They have to keep getting that share of the vote from the people who elected them to to get elected. Whereas in Victoria, it's just incredibly chancy. So there's there's not the the same feeling that you need to get votes from the same people to get elected. It can be, you, you, parties will be more concerned about whether they've got a good preference flow, um, what Glenn Drury thinks of them. I mean, he's, he seems to be pretty undemanding, but he does have a few political views. Yeah, it also makes you think that perhaps these micro-parties, those who would most benefit from preference harvesting, might focus more of their attention on the preferencing deals and less on campaigning because clearly it's not about getting the attention of voters if you're not relying on them to actually preference you. Yes, it does make, a, it does make some difference, but, but it's um, like when we're trying to model what's going to happen in particular elections, it's often more to do with who's got the good preference flow in a given region, and rather than whether they get 1% or 2% of the vote, that often that often doesn't matter. It's actually really counterintuitive when you play about with, with these. Uh, the ABC has calculators for this system, and you change the votes of one party, and something ridiculous happens to the end model result. You know, you 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 uh, you, you push the uh, the Greens up in some area, and suddenly uh, shooters, fishers, and farmers get elected instead of legalised cannabis or something like that. It's all very weird, mm. I, and I also should mention that one of the my big concerns here is that the preference harvesting system is itself affecting the electoral reform debate. Uh, these the micro parties themselves don't want to go against preference harvesting because as Glenn Drury has said in the leaked video, that is the one thing that he will cut them off for. Uh, the major parties are, are scared of the the damage that uh, 
that, that can be done to them uh, by these preference tickets, and that may be affecting their own positions on electoral reform. I, I think it's very interesting that the, the Liberal Party crab walked away from initially strongly opposing group ticket voting and then said they were just going to uh, fiddle around the edges of it in some unstated way. Yeah, no, it absolutely means that we might not see reform for a very long time if uh, all the parties are in some way beholden or afraid of what might happen with preference deals. And I also wanted to talk about 2022 and this group ticket voting system because we do now know the kind of deals that have been done because we saw these um, ticket voting systems released in some form for us to analyse, certainly not me to analyse, but the experts like yourself, Anthony Green and many others to analyse and to get a sense of, you know, who's done a deal with who. Could you talk us through some of the blocks and what's happened this year in comparison to last time and, and whether there's anything of note Yes, this is a bit different to last time in that there seems to be somewhat more principled preferencing among the left-wing micro-parties so that there's a, a sort of recognisable left grouping with Victorian socialists, uh, reason, animal justice, the Greens and so on. Um, that increases the chance that we will see some of the left micro parties winning seats at this election. Uh, there's a second group, which is essentially the the Drury group of uh, the so-called uh, minor party alliance, I think he calls them. There's, a, there's about nine of those with positions all over the place, several of whom are the same ones that ran last time. And there's also a group of uh, right-wing micro-parties that are not working with the Drury Group and that are essentially the, the new anti-lockdown type conspiracy parties plus the the old sort of One Nation and United Australia. And there's a fair bit of preference flow uh, between those, although on my modelling so far, they haven't been so often looking likely to win seats. Um, so th this is a bit different. Last time, the micro-party preference arrangements were much more dominated by the Drury Group, and this time they're not. So that may make a difference to who we see elected. Yeah. Um, I was also wondering about that left block because uh, I heard you discussing, I think it was on a podcast, that block, and in particular reflecting on the Animal Justice Party um, and its preferencing and whether it might get the benefits of preferences but has not necessarily preferenced the way the rest of the block was hoping it would. What does that, is that correct, first of all, and what does that mean or what has that meant in practice? Yes, there's been a, a fair bit of publicity about how the, uh, the Animal Justice Party managed to... Uh, to seem like it was in the Drury group and then uh, rattled them at the uh, at the last moment and submit tickets that were that were different. And this sort of thing used to happen uh, a lot more than it does now. Lately, it's been more more tightly controlled. Um, and so what can happen when this happens is that uh, a party can 
get the benefit of a deal without reciprocating on it. And this has put the Animal Justice Party in a very strong position in one particular region without them having to uh, give preferences back to the to the Drury Group. Uh, it means, of course, that that group won't deal with them uh, ever again. But with any luck, the system will be abolished next time anyway, so it may not matter. You can only hope. Uh, I was also, you know, reflecting on some of those other minor parties like the DLP, which features the ex-Labor MP Adam Somurek. And I know that um, the DLP seems to be better placed to perhaps get seats as well. And similarly, Transport Matters are benefiting from Labor and Greens preferences. Could you explain the effect of major parties preferencing some of these minor parties and whether those two parties might have a shot? Yes, it's sometimes uh, one of the things that makes this this preference harvesting method work is that the uh, the big parties don't have the sense to, uh, to, to work together and preference each other ahead of these micro parties. And so they both end up at risk of losing seats to these micro parties as a result. Um, Transport Matters has worked, been seen as working fairly well with the government in this term, and both Labor and the Greens have put it ahead of each other, which can help it get elected in, in a lot of scenarios, even off a low vote. But I did find in my simulations that that didn't always happen. Uh, in particular, Labor might not have much spare vote in that area. So if Labor gets excluded, that might not help them all that all that much. The DLP has some pretty good ballot draws for its uh, star recruits who were rejects from other parties, uh, Adam Somurek and, and Bernie Finn. And the DLP also does well out of uh, name recognition confusion because when it appears in front of the Labor Party on ballot papers, um, about 1% of voters will think that it's the Labor Party and vote for it by mistake. Uh, a similar thing also happens with the Liberal Democrats. It's hard though to predict exactly which parties are going to get up on these preference deals. All you can say is that when you look at it, there's obviously enough chances to go around that we are going to again see some parties get elected off very small vote shares who wouldn't get elected under any other voting system in the world. Mm. I'm speaking with Dr Kevin Bonham and we are talking about the Victorian state election and preference deals. This, as I mentioned, does have implications for below-the-line voting for people now, right now, those who are enrolled to vote and going to vote at this state election. And uh, there is, I think, a fairly simple method for the below-the-line voting system um, in the state election. It doesn't seem overwhelming to me. That said, I am a below-the-line voter anyway. But could we talk about below-the-line voting now and I guess why you would implore those listening to, to do that, to disrupt these preference deals? Yes, I recommend that everyone in the election votes below the line. Uh, it will help break down the, 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 the fake preference flows that are created by preference harvesting. Uh, it's, it means that you 
decide where your preferences go and you know where your preferences go because you can look at the preference tickets on the VEC website, but some of them have been constructed to be deliberately confusing. So you might think that your party's preference ticket favours one party, but it might be that it actually favours another in some way that's not obvious. Uh, some of them use clever tricks like juggling the order of candidates sort of hopping backwards and forwards between Liberals and Labor in a very confusing way so that it's not actually clear who the preference ticket actually helps. Um, so if people vote below the line, that helps to break up these preference spirals and increase the chance that the candidates who get elected are there on merit based on support in their region. At the last election, even though only 9% voted below the line, that was enough to mess up three of these so-called preference spirals, although in one case that resulted in another preference spiral getting up instead. But it does have an effect. And if the, if the voting below the line rate goes up, then that will break up more of these preference spirals. We will get fewer MPs into Parliament off very low vote shares, and we will get fewer MPs into Parliament who are beholden to this rotten system. Yeah, absolutely. And to give people a, a clear sense of just how easy it is, so clearly with the above-the-line option, you just have to place a number one in the square next to a party's name, but that means that that group ticket voting system is in full flight and the preference deals that have been done will happen through your vote. But if you vote below the line, all you need to do is mark at least five preferences from one through to five to make sure that your vote is a formal vote. And you can choose to go beyond five preferences, as many as you like, up until the end. But as is clearly stated by the VEC, you only need to number five boxes. And to me, it seems quite a small thing, given that we already have to number all the boxes for the lower house. Yes, just voting one to five for, for candidates is easy. It might be as simple as one to three for one party and four to five for another, and and that's it. That might be all. I would encourage voters, if they can, to go further. Uh, I would say, including your vote, every party that you like or that you think is okay. That will protect the parties that you think are okay from losing to the parties that you think are bad. So if you think that there are five or six parties on the ballot who are good or okay, then I would recommend numbering all the candidates for all those parties, which might take you up to 15 or something like that. But even just voting one to five and stopping is better than voting one above the line. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, you could do all the numbers if you really want to, but <laughs> as we know, you've got to make sure that all the numbers are correct. So make sure you double-check your numbering. Does that mean that, that a vote would be informal if you get, you know, one number that's not right in, in terms of, like, you skip a number by accident? If you get your first five right and you make a mistake after that, your vote still counts. Oh, well, that's uh, good. So, so if you get if you get your first five right and make a mistake at seventeen, that's okay. Uh, your vote your vote's still still counting and still working up to that point. So it, it's not it, that's not a crisis. It's very important, particularly some people vote from the bottom up. Some people try to number all the boxes and they vote from the bottom up and they get out by one some somewhere and they end up with a mistake at the top. Very important. Make sure the numbers one through to five at least are clearly marked on your ballot paper once and once only that there's no other number that can be confused for them. 
Yeah. And as we have just been saying, this is for the upper house, not the lower house, which you have to number all the boxes. Yes. In the lower house, number all the boxes, make sure that you haven't uh, skipped any numbers, make sure that you haven't repeated any numbers. Um, if you if you skip or repeat numbers, that can cause your vote to be informal. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin, for chatting with us. I guess just to close out, are there any final messages or points you wanted to make about this topic before people head off to vote if they haven't already? Oh, I just as I ideally hope that this is the the end of it and that uh, as a result of this election, we will I, I hope that we will see in the next parliament that the parliament gets serious about reforming this system. Ideally, Victoria should go to a single statewide electorate like New South Wales, but that's going to require a referendum. Um, I really encourage voters to put pressure on their parties to do something about this system. And if your party doesn't support reforming this system, then that's a good reason to not vote for them. Thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to take us through all of these issues. It's been very enlightening and I really do appreciate your expertise today. Very welcome. I've just been speaking with Dr. Kevin Bonham. He is a sophologist, a polling analyst and political commentator. And we've just been talking about the Victorian state election, which is this Saturday, and uh, delving deeply into the group ticket voting system and preference harvesting and deals that have been done behind the scenes and how you can disrupt them by voting below the line in the upper house. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.